Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I am today in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I am joined by Corey Shockey in California. Uh, David Sanger in Massachusetts, and Rosa Brooks somewhere on the main line outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, All of us are coming to you in a week full of news to talk about what it means. And since we are Deep State Radio and we talk a lot about foreign policy and try to drill down, the president of the United States is leaving at the end of this week for a 12-day trip to five countries, including um, uh, meeting uh, three days in China with Xi Jinping and the leadership uh, in, in, in that country. Um, and he's doing it while a swirl of scandal spins around him back at home, while multiple members of his campaign team uh, are indicted or have struck plea deals, um, and uh, where the noose around this White House on a whole host of issues seems to be tightening. Uh, and reports are that the president seems to be freaking out about it. And so, guys, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a president of the United States who is in the midst of this kind of scandal, going to Asian countries, including our most important counterpart on the global stage, China, this wounded, uh, in the midst of, of, of some very, very serious crises, uh, notably the crisis with North Korea. Uh, David Sanger, let me start with you. What do you What do you think the consequences of the news of this week are going to be for Trump on this trip? Well, I think it's going to serve to make foreign leaders more leery of him on a couple of different levels. So before the Manafort indictment happened, um, they knew that he had this potential vulnerability, but their biggest concern about him was that he was he is to say the least unpredictable and so the concern that the japanese have that the south koreans have uh, and that the chinese have is that he might make good on one of his um threats against north korea for the kind of action that we that other presidents have been tempted sorely tempted to do and have held back um now i think they've got sort of two, in some ways, countervailing concerns. One is that you're going to have a weakened America that will not be able to go respond at all. And that's a concern if you're South Korea and if you're Japan. Uh, And the second concern may be that the president could benefit from a significant foreign policy crisis that could be a distraction from all this, the usual concerns that people had even, say, during the Clinton uh, impeachment and so forth when there were all these wag the dog um, theories. Um, The Chinese 
probably view this as a net positive, that they come out of last week's 19th Party Congress, determined that China, on a faster pace than we all thought, is going to try to emerge as the number one power and the power that other countries look to for leadership and flock to. And if the United States seems consumed by a domestic scandal so complicated that no foreigners and many here can't really understand it, that's just fine with the Chinese. Uh, um, Corey, uh, what's, 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 what's your take? I mean, what, what, what worries you? What would you be advising the president uh, you know, prior to going on a trip in a circumstance like this? Is there a way that he can use it to distract from this crisis? Uh, well, I'm not sure he's going to be able to distract from this crisis, but he could. Um, so, so first, I should say I absolutely agree with what David Sanger just said that our adversaries will see opportunities in this. Our allies will see weakness, more than weakness. They see the possibility of a trapdoor opening underneath an American president and him falling through the floorboards with all the consequences attendant on America's allies who rely on our security guarantees, who rely on our leadership, who rely on our steadying hand, even such as that is in the era of Donald Trump. Uh, so, so adversaries are licking their chops and allies are anxious. That has been the general trend of America's most important relationships in the time of Trump, and this will accelerate it. Second, it will create anxiety that there's going to be a wag the dog response, right? That Trump's really going to pre take a preventative war to North Korea in order to change the subject at home. Um, I think that theory is generally over overestimated uh, in American politics. Uh, but if there's anybody vulnerable to making that kind of choice, it's the erratic and unprincipled President Trump. Uh, so where I think the president could use those circumstances to his advantage is by showing everybody they don't need to worry about it, right? Being even more calm, even more steady, even more... Uh, synced up with his cabinet's perspectives. Uh, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are, have just been to Asia and have been sending very comforting messages to the South Koreans, both of our determination to defend them, uh, but also that diplomacy is at the forefront of this problem for the United States and that we understand how catastrophic the consequences of any war on the Korean Peninsula will be for the people of South Korea. If the president does anything to, to shake the confidence that the Secretary of Defense and the chairman gave America's allies this week or seems not to understand the multilateral context that strengthens our position on the Korean Peninsula, that strengthens our position vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. That is the, the Australians, the Indians, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Vietnamese, all of the countries that support the rules-based international order the United States has fostered and defended. 
anything that suggests the president doesn't understand that is going to undo the good work of the cabinet and the military leaders in Asia in the run-up to the president's trip. You know, Rosa, one of the things that strikes me is that uh, when bad stuff like this happens, it haunts the president in the form of press conferences. And that a president who goes off to Asia on a trip like this typically has lots of press conferences because he wants to distract from, you know, what's going on at home or get credit for a statesmanship or whatever. But if he has a press conference, people are going to start asking him questions like this in front of Asian leaders. Um, and so there is this kind of conflicting, there's this kind of tension about how do you handle this kind of thing. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts about the trip are. Well, I think we know how Trump handles these things. He he either changes the subject or he browbeats the reporters, uh, and he generally can be counted upon to say something wacky. Um, so that's how he's going to handle it. Uh, so I'm looking forward eagerly to these press conferences. Um, but but I, I, I do think that it's unlikely that there's going to be a whole lot of good publicity coming out of this trip for the president, uh, precisely because of the aforementioned ten tendency to say wacky stuff. Uh, his, his behavior on his uh, prior trips has tended to be uh, embarrassing. Uh, I think we're going to get more of the same. Uh, I, I, I mean, we, we, from both a policy perspective and a sort of unguarded Trump utterance and behavior perspective, um, I think we're going to get <laughs> Trump crass remarks about Chinese food, about foreign leaders, uh, uh, Trump pushing people out of the way. Uh, I, I cannot wait for his meeting with Philippine President Duterte, uh, in which he will likely uh, make further noises applauding the human rights abuses committed by that regime. Um, you know, I think that he will basically step in it in a zillion possible ways. Um, uh, and this is kind of par for the course. And, and, and it will then require a, a further round of diplomacy by uh, Jim Mattis and various other U.S. officials to apologize for Trump's behavior on the trip and explain that he didn't really mean it. So, David, let me take it to the specifics. The thing that has a lot of people worried is North Korea. We hear a little bit of wag the dog. What was the best case that Donald Trump could hope for on this trip regarding North Korea? Well, before we get to that, let me just um, take you to one notable point about this trip. It's long. It's 12 days long. It's actually the longest trip an American president has taken to Asia in a quarter century. Um, and this observation, Donald Trump doesn't like long trips that take him away from home. As his own family has pointed out, uh, you know, he, he likes to get back home to familiar territory um, very quickly. And so the opportunities to make the kind of uh, errors that Rosa was describing I think actually increase as the trip goes on, as he gets tired and as he gets somewhat irritated that he is not in familiar territory where he can get on the phone in the same time zone and talk to the people who he normally talks to, who he reaches to for support and so forth. So I would look for this trip to get stranger as time goes on. Um, to your question on North Korea, so what was the best that he could hope to accomplish here? The key part of this trip is his visit to China. And he suspects, rightly so, that the Chinese approach on North Korea is to give him just enough additional pressure that they, Beijing will put 
on the North Koreans to hold the U.S. at bay, but not enough to actually get the problem solved or bring about any kind of chance that the North Korean regime would collapse. And so the thing to look for on this trip here is whether or not he plays along with that and gives this some more time, or whether Xi says quietly to him, look, here's the deal we can go strike, and comes up with some kind of quiet thought under which they actually, the Chinese would actually try to alter the regime or the current leadership uh, in North Korea. I don't think they're prepared to go, go do that. What are the uh, Japanese and the South Koreans worried about? They're worried about a secret deal with China. And that when you when you talk to people who are around their leadership, you know, the, they bring up most of all is the Nixon opening to China, which took them by surprise. And they're afraid this president could also take them by surprise. Well, the interesting thing is that Nixon's trip to China in 1972 came at Nixon at the height of his powers um, and uh, was a very strong president. Uh, this is a very weak president uh, who's spiraling downward, uh, which I think has triggered the wag the dog stories. But David sort of lays the pretext for something uh, that's a variation on the wag the dog, uh, which typically involves you know, going to war, at least in that, that movie it did. Uh, and that is cutting a bad deal because you got to have something declare success about and distract, you know, and the Chinese right now are in exactly the opposite position of the United States. They're growing, they're more assertive. In the 203 minute long speech that Xi Jinping gave to the China Chinese National Co uh, Congress, uh, he uh, asserted that China would assume a role as a mighty power on the world stage this is breaking with 500 years of tradition. The last time the Chinese asserted such a thing was during the Ming Dynasty uh, when they were sending fleets led by a eunuch admiral out around the world. Um, that's even farther back than Corey usually goes. Corey, beat that. David, did you manage to get the eunuch admiral on deep state radio? Because that would have been quite bad. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. Don't go there. Him slow and over the middle of the plate, please. Do not tempt any of us to answer whether or not there already is a eunuch admiral on Deep State Radio. I'm just, I'm just, not, I'm just not going to go there. But what I, but, but, picking this up and going back to a slightly more recent historical reference, Xi Jinping also had himself sort of placed or was placed in the Chinese hierarchy at the level of Mao. Uh, with his words and his thoughts on uh, 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 the socialism with Chinese characteristics placed in the constitution of China uh, using language that was once only reserved for Mao. So you have the most powerful leader of China at the most powerful moment in Chinese history in 500 years planning to take the most assertive role that they have ever played on the global stage approached for a three-day visit by the weakest, least competent president of the United States at a time when he is compromised by scandal uh, and in desperate need of a deal. And, and 
he'll be walking on eggshells. He can't have the Chinese come out and say this meeting was a failure. So, Corey, play that out. So, David, I hadn't thought the issue through with nearly as terrifying a precision as you just laid it out. So, so thank you for ensuring I will get no sleep while the president's in China. Um, and we are at risk of him making that deal because you make a very plausible case that the power differential uh, is enormous. A couple of things, though. Um, I, I'm confident that you may well be right, but it's also possible that she isn't nearly as powerful as he thinks he is, that maybe maybe he has succeeded in doing this. Maybe his Chinese adversaries are better readers of Sun Tzu than he is, and they are leaving him enough rope to despoil his own position um, by grandiosity, the pictures on the wall, etc. Second thing is, I don't think anybody believes the Chinese are actually uh, committed to an open trading system. You know, Xi's speech at Davos was, was a cheap ploy to to pick up ground that we are vacating. And we're making that possible for him. He's not making it possible for him. So he might not be in as strong a position, either domestically or internationally, as he thinks he is. And it may turn out to have been an illusory high watermark for him. I do agree that, that President Trump has almost nothing to show for 10 months in office and will be sorely tempted to make a deal. I also agree with your judgment that President Trump appears not to know the difference between a good deal and a bad deal. Witness him walking away from TPP without getting anything from the Chinese for it. But I do think he is more tightly constrained than your description suggests, because the kinds of things that the Chinese might want uh, you know, vacating our alliance obligations, reducing our military presence in the region. Uh, it's hard to see how the president is in a strong enough position to give the Chinese what the Chinese might want. And the actions of the Trump administration over North Korea would make that a a full-on 180 volta face over what, what they have been doing. That doesn't mean they won't do it. That doesn't mean the president can't do it. Um, but it, it makes it much harder for him to give them anything precisely because he's in such a weak position. And because on Asia, the cabinet appears to have been largely united and the president himself has moved on important issues like our alliance agreements to the Japanese and the South Koreans. As, as anybody who listens to this show knows, I almost always agree with Corey and defer to her. Um, I, I do think in this one particular case that um, I, I have a slight disagreement because I do think that Xi Jinping is in an extraordinarily powerful position. Uh, he's got his own uh, team on the standing committee, uh, new people brought into the Politburo. He has been masterful in the way that he has rewired uh, the Chinese hierarchy to serve his objectives. Uh, and there is no sign of any kind of strong opposition or even weak opposition to him at this moment. So I do think he's particularly strong. Now, having said that, 
I don't know what they could get. I don't know what we could get. I think the emphasis is on walking on eggshells. But Corey, Rosa, let me turn to you, and then I also want to turn to David on this set point. A lot of people have said because of of, of what China's position is on this, and uh, because of its past behavior, that China might not actually be the intermediary with North Korea. That the real intermediary and the one country that's got a more active working relationship with the North Koreans right now is Russia. And clearly, U.S.-Russia relations are at a very weird point. They were at a weird point before all the, the news this week. But the more the stories around Trump and Russia and Trump's team and Russia continue to evolve, the weirder the U.S.-Russia relationship is going to get. Uh, and also, by the way, let's, let's be clear about this. The Russians who are masters at manipulating situations like this are undoubtedly sitting, they may not be sitting on a P-tape, but although they may be, but they, they are undoubtedly sit, sitting on all sorts of information about meetings and entreaties and wire transfers and um, conversations, which, if released, would be incredibly damaging to the Trump administration. Well, interesting question, David, of how many of those the National Security Agency also picked up, if any. Of course, we know they have conversations that involved um, the previous National Security Advisor, uh, Mr. Flynn, and, or General Flynn, and uh, the Russian ambassador, but presumably that's not the limit of what they have picked up and uh, would be interesting to know. I assume all of that is probably now in Mueller's hands. Right, but I mean, let's, uh, I'll go to you, since you picked up on it, but let's, let's, let's follow up with that. Just as weak Trump mid-scandal, desperately in need of distraction and fearful of something blowing up in his face is going to be walking on eggshells with the Chinese and the Chinese are going to have the upper hand. How do you think this affects how the U.S. cooperates with Russia on North Korea? Well, at this point, it's interesting because the Russians actually are becoming more active, in some ways more active with North Korea than the Chinese. What's odd is that they're opening some new opportunities for the North Koreans. Uh, we believe that the Russians, for the first time, are giving them a new way into the Internet. There's been discussion of uh, some new oil-related deals between Russia and North Korea. It was unclear to me how they would go transport that. So the Russians are seeing an opportunity here to become uh, a bit of a player, uh, in part because they understand that the North Koreans deeply distrust the Chinese at this moment and are afraid they're going to sell them out. So in some ways, and you've heard President Trump once say that the Russians have been have been troublesome on, on the North Korea problem. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens further at this point. Rosa, what do you think? Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I, you know, the Russians, uh, we don't know exactly what the Russians think would be a good outcome here. The Russians obviously like uh, work often on the confusion to our enemies principle of foreign policy, in which they're not necessarily trying to achieve a specific outcome beyond tying everybody else up in knots. Uh, it's, I, you know, I don't have any real sense of what the Russians want to have happen beyond that when it comes to North Korea. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I clearly there is room for them to play more of a role here if they want to. But what, what that will mean, who knows? Uh, 
Well, you know, I mean, I think that's I think that's a correct analysis from all three of you. I, I do think that it suggests um, that a, an administration that has been kind of inert on, on on much foreign policy except to retreat is going to be compromised over the next several months by what is going on. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just seeing the beginning of this and that will have an effect on others. And I do think, Corey, that there is, it's hard to analyze this without coming to the conclusion that opportunistic governments elsewhere, the Chinese government, the Russian government, uh, the Iranian government, uh, regional actors, uh, who seek a different role on the world stage are going to continue to step up and that in fact, you have the combination of Trump's retreat from international agreements and the international order uh, voluntarily, because that was his public policy, compounded now by Trump's retreat from or, or forced retreat from further involvement or leadership in the international order because of the problems he's got at home. And the fact that right now where another president might say, well, I'm going to use my strong team to go offset this. He doesn't actually have a strong team in place. Um, and so I, it, it, I have to say that the void, which is going to be filled by others over the next couple of years, is likely to grow and create opportunities. Do you agree or disagree? Yes, I do agree. I, I think the central question right now is whether the rules-based international order that the United States built out of the ashes of World War II and did so not because those men were starry-eyed idealists who thought the United Nations was the be-all, end-all of legitimacy, but those hard men who fought the Nazis in Imperial Japan and saw the world crumble before their very eyes were struggling to build something more resilient than they had experienced in their lifetimes I, I, and succeeded in ways that they would celebrate and we should celebrate. Whether that liberal international order is durable and deep-rooted enough to sustain itself without American leadership, at least for a while. I do think there are signs that other beneficiaries of the order are, are willing, even if tentatively, even if hesitantly, to step forward and shoulder a greater share of the burden of sustaining it. I think the Australians and the Japanese trying to sustain TPP uh, after our withdrawal, all of the countries who are uh, committed to the to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, sustaining it without our involvement. Even German national security experts stepping forward to say, all of us need to do more to sustain the order at a time the United States won't. I, I think those are very hopeful signs, but I suspect they are all predicated on the belief that this is a temporary faltering of American leadership and not a permanent redirection of the United States. And, well, and if, if Trump is were, impeached, it may be even more temporary than we think. So there's there's always that, Corey. Right. But if Trump Thank is you. if if Trump is impeached <laughs> or indicted, if, if Trump is impeached or indicted um, or, or resigned through the 25th Amendment. Yeah. Um, the the successor administration is not going to be particularly strong. Is it? 
the successor administration is not going to be is not going to be one that I would like. Um, no question about it. But I but I I do think that you know I'm obviously I'm a lifelong Democrat. Uh, I, I don't think much of Mike Pence, uh, but I do think that the level of criminality and criminality, recklessness, and incompetence that Trump has demonstrated would would in fact be quite difficult for anyone else to replicate. Uh, so I so think I, that's right. You know, I mean, even if he tried really, really hard. Um, so, so I think that any alternative, when it comes to foreign policy, I think when it comes to domestic policy, quite possibly a Pence administration would be every bit as bad or worse from my perspective than a Trump administration. But from a foreign policy perspective, uh, there's nowhere to go but up. Well, oh, I can. Careful, careful. I, yes, <laughs> yeah. don't taunt the gods into smiting us, Rosa. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a. I think we're going to go into the busy season for smiting. By the way, I think there's a lot. Nowhere to of go smiting. but up if Donald Trump was not our president. To be clear, e- even there, Rosa, I feel like there's nothing that the Olympian gods like so much as demonstrating yeah, Corey, to are, us fallible right. humans the limits <laughs> right, of our creativity. Right. I apologize, Olympian gods. You're you're quite right, Corey. I'm tempting fate. <laughs> well, yeah, you are. But th- let, let me ask you a question. Just throw out a number here, b- because you are the Olympian gods of the deep state. Um, how? What is the shortest period of time that you think Trump will be under a cloud? I do not believe Trump will ever get out from under a cloud. The only question is how many Republican leaders in Congress uh are willing to continue to stand under that cloud with him rather than make a sideways maneuver and separate themselves. Let me, let me rephrase the question uh, for Rosa and for David. What is the shortest period of time that you think that the United States government will be hamstrung by being under the Trump cloud? Shortest. Well, David, I'll, I'll leap in here. On the investigation side of this, um, I'm with Corey, or to use our favorite phrase, I think Corey is exactly right. This cloud will <laughs> this cloud will not lift because even if you get through this set of Mueller actions and indictments and it doesn't touch the president himself, there will be this constant question of what exactly were the links that the Russians may have had with the campaign and so forth and so on that'll be the source of continued congressional and journalistic investigation and so forth. Now, that cloud may not be crippling to the president, and if he got somewhat resolved and it avoided him, he may actually get a moment to go restore some of the power that uh, you've noted that he is notably absent right now. But given the poll numbers, given the divisions in the country, and given the uh, continuing suspicions uh, out there, I don't really see a situation in which the cloud fully lifts. David, so, I, I, I think, are you asking a different question, though? Are you asking what is, how quickly is it possible that Trump could somehow resign or, or be otherwise ousted from uh, power? Yeah, I, I, what I want to no. know is, I mean, I, what I'm kind of wondering about is this. If we agree that Trump in his current or likely future condition is going to be uh, weakened internationally, and that's going to create a void that others may fill. 
The question is how quickly the United States can reverse that position. Oh, you mean once once the administration is over, David? Whether if, that's four right. years or eight years or anything or shorter these, than that? Right, or, or this case is put behind us somehow and somehow he manages you the know, greatest third act in the history of American I politics. Think the, you know, I think the people said after Vietnam, the United States would never be back. It was bad. People said after the big downturns of the 80s and the loss of our a lot of our manufacturing base, the United States would never come back. Well, they didn't envision the technological changes that brought it back. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union created a moment for the U.S. to come back. So, you know, I don't think so far people have made a whole lot of money betting on a permanent downturn in the United States. The difference here is the China difference that you mentioned before. The Chinese are uniquely poised right now to take advantage of that, even though they've got some of their own issues. Yeah, I think that I think that the uh, shift from George W. Bush to Barack Obama illustrates that the world is willing to forgive pretty quickly and become enamored of a new and different American president who seems to offer something new and different. Um, but I think David's right that 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 even if we imagine that that Trump goes, that someone is elected who is viewed as as really turning things around and everyone in the world is excited about that person, that the, there's a question of what has happened in the meantime in terms of in terms of deals that have been made with the Chinese, deals that have been made with others, relationships that have been formed, practices that have become habits, uh, that becomes hard or impossible to unwind. And I and I think the answer is we we obviously don't know and it partly depends on, you know, does does Trump does Trump's cabinet finally lose it and remove him and you know under the 25th amendment and Congress backs it up in 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 you know 6 weeks from now unlikely but not completely impossible uh or does Trump somehow get a second term unlikely but not completely impossible you know that that we don't know how long it takes for us to get to the post Trump era uh and a lot depends on that as well as a lot depending on things that we can't currently predict you know, external, external things that just happen in the world. Um, so I think it's, it's not, could the U.S. recover from this, globally speaking? Yeah, it's not impossible. Is it likely that that recovery is, is rapid or full? No, I don't think it is. I don't well, want to I, put money on U.S. decline, actually. Well, I, well, of course you would. You'd, of course you, I would. You bet against <laughs> any. Of course she would. <laughs> I put money on everyone's decline. Exactly. That's in taxes, I think. Yeah, well, Corey wears the, 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 the tiara of optimism. <laughs> you wear the heavy, the heavy crown of entropy. <laughs> what does the crown of entropy look like? I, it just sucks the energy out of everything around it. You know, it's like... <laughs> But, but Corey, I want to give you the last word here. As we look at all of this, you know, we talk, I you know, personally, I think the U.S. is going to recover. I guess what I was getting at was, but it's going to take three years minimum, right? We're just coming up on the first anniversary of Trump's uh, election. This has happened astonishingly quickly, and we haven't pointed any of this out. It's five months in his presidency. But, but, but the, the, the reality is... There is a period, a real period of multiple years here in which other actors are going to step up. And as Rosa points out, they're going to make some gains that are institutionalized or will be very difficult to reverse. But, I, but, but Corey, let me take it to you from a historic 
historian's perspective. From the historian's perspective, it might be that we look at Vietnam as a turning point uh, and and the, the Gulf Wars as a further turning point. And, this is, and at some point we might say over the course of this 30 or 40 or 50 year period, the United States began to fritter away some of the advantages that it had. Uh, and even if it remains a major power for 100 years, that it was weakened relative to the rest of the world because of those things and the gains of the rest of the world. Isn't that true? Yes, it absolutely is true. And if you think about the parallel of the demise of British hegemony, it didn't happen with a bang. It happened with a whimper because the United States was smart enough to take advantage of opportunities that the British were missing. And, and British foreign policy choices encouraged and enabled that uh, well through the 1920s. Uh, but what is different about the United States, and here I am adjusting the tiara of optimism so it sits squarely on my pointy little head. Um, what's different about the United States as a hegemon of the international order, is that we created an international order that others voluntarily opt into, that is more cost-effective because we share the burdens of that, that is more legitimate because of the voluntary association of our alliances and participation in institutions in which we voluntarily limit our freedom of action. That's what's different about the American order, and that has made it both more sustainable and more cost-effective than previous orders were. If others help share this disquieting time and sustain the order, I actually think that the other challengers, the Chinese through their strength, the Russians through their weakness, um, are have severe limitations that will make it very hard for them to pick up a lot of momentum towards replacing the United States. Even across a 40 or 50 year time frame. it would require a staggering level of American mistakes with consistency over time for that to happen. Um, so, so I am in fact much more optimistic than Rosa is because I agree with you, David, others will see opportunity, others will take opportunity, but I haven't seen the suggestion that there is an alternative with anywhere near the kind of magnetism that the American order has provided for other states. Well, you know, I think you, you, you were, uh, continue to earn the tiara of optimism. Um, uh, although I, I agree with most of the points that you made, I think there was something in what you said that was optimistic and thought-provoking as well. And that is that as Britain declined, Britain was not supplanted by an enemy. Britain was supplanted That's a great point. by an ally uh, or uh, at least a like-thinking nation, which was us. And we needn't assume that the decline of the United States is necessarily only going to serve our enemies. Uh, uh, the void may be filled by the Europeans, it may be filled by the Germans, it may be filled by some other alliance, and it may not be filled as in the past by one great power, it may be filled in different places by different kinds of alliances. Um, so I, obviously this is a longer term thing to watch, uh, and one can't draw a direct connection between you know, the 
plea deal of George Papadopoulos and the decline of the United States. Uh, but uh, but it sure does lead to an interesting discussion. And for that, I thank you, David. I thank you, Rosa. I thank you, Corey. You guys are the best. Uh, our listeners are the best. We love our Deep State Radio nerds, and we hope that you will uh, respond to all of these things on the Twitterverse and elsewhere, as you always do, because we love getting these responses. We will return to our bunkers, but we will not stay in our bunkers. We will be back next week with more news with the president in Asia. Who knows? Maybe he'll stay there. Maybe he'll, you know, take asylum in North Korea. <laughs> we don't- um, <laughs> That's a wonderful um, now that means the tiara of optimism uh, for the week. Yeah, right. Donald Trump at the DMZ waving a white flag, saying, "Let me in, let me in." No, no, wait! Somebody shoving him across the DMZ <laughs> yeah, from the right. southern side. Right, Mattis giving him a little bit of a poke in the lower back <laughs> as the he stumbled. South Korean president. Right, at the gate, you know, and somebody, they're going, close the gate, close the gate. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, America, you did this to yourself. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Look forward to joining you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.